the information you learn and the way that you interact with the world is changed through hallucinogens, that's not authorized in the official dialogue. Indigenous cultures often have hallucinogenic traditions, from Mesoamerica to Africa, the Pacific, and indigenous Europe. The United States, Spain, and Japan, just as diverse, all drink similar amounts of coffee while being very different cultures. Why do these cultures that differ so much share these traits? And what do these, and the use of other drugs, tell us about the values and customs of a culture? I'm Sam, and this is the Illegitimate Scholar Podcast, the weekly cultural anthropology and history podcast that makes sense of our census world through indigenous and historical examples, academic methods, and social science, and a perspective not limited by the crushing restrictions that come with traditional academia and public schools. Today, we're going to find out the similarities in a few indigenous hallucinogenic traditions and why these similar traditions thrived in these very different cultures. Then, what makes alcohol tied to settled life? What makes alcohol give way to caffeine as the main drug of the West? And what are the consequences of this shift? Finally, what the drugs of the last few decades have to say about the state of our modern culture. So join the Discord to discuss this and other episodes. The link is below. I'm going to try to start a live show. I'd, I'd love in the Discord some recommendations of how I would do that. I, I'm thinking like a weekly thing on YouTube and Rumble uh, where I talk about more current events, a, a more casual thing. So I'd love any input on that. Um, and there's a book posted uh, down below that I read this week that's not super related to this, but it's called The Horse, the Wheel, and Language. It's about early Indo-Europeans and the steppe. And um, if that sounds interesting to you um, and you buy books on Amazon or through Audible, use my referral link, please, if you want to support the show. Okay, so the main question, what does a culture's use of drugs tell us about their values and customs? And uh, the idea here is that cultures use drugs that fit in with their broader culture. And I'm not talking about like rural people smoking meth and like city people smoking crack. I'm talking about like use, not abuse. And of course, the drugs that are considered use and the drugs that are considered abuse uh, change over time and, and across different cultures. But I'm, I'm talking about like essentially mostly culturally sanctioned drug use. Um, so most cultures use multiple drugs, but they're more or less important. There's a drug hierarchy, you know, maybe one drug is the favorite. And then there's a number two that's very popular with a subculture. It's important to the culture, but, but there's usually a main one that sticks out above the rest. So we're going to start out with hallucinogens, uh, probably the earliest and whose traditions are mostly ancient. Uh, so these hallucinogens, they're, the form of these drugs is they're very natural. So I'm going to go through a few examples, but so you know exactly what I mean by natural. It's just the least processing that there possibly is. So in West Africa, in um, Gabon, the uh, this is called Bwiti. Uh, Bwiti, I'm probably mispronouncing that. It's tree bark, and uh, it's known, the translation is otherworldly tree medicine or the bean who calls. This is a shaman-led ceremony, um, and it's communal with, with multiple people, like in the community. And then in the Amazon, there's ayahuasca. Uh, the vine of an ayahuasca plant and tobacco is mixed together. It's known as vine of souls and rope of the dead. So there's very little processing on this. It's just like two substances kind of mixed together. And again, there's a shaman-led ceremony associated with this. If you know of Joe Rogan, then you know about ayahuasca. This is an ancient ancient tradition that has lasted until today. So the desert of Southern North America. So there's this, this area of land that's split along national borders now. So this is where peyote is from in this desert area in North, 
the northern part of Mexico and like the southwest part of Texas. So it's it's dried pieces of cactus. That's the only processing. And again, shamans. Um, Pacific Islands, uh, kava roots. This is known as nourishment of the gods. Uh, they, there's a drink made from the roots. It's more mellow than the other ones. And there's ceremonies and uh, social things that this drug has a use for. And then um, in Eurasia, there's this thing, fly agaric, which I was reading about for a little while until I realized that it's just the common name of um, Amanita muscaria, which is something I have heard of. Uh, heard of When I read fly agaric, I thought I was like, oh my God, it's this thing I haven't heard of. But no, it's just Amanita muscaria. There's archaeological evidence of the use of Amanita muscaria mushrooms in different ways. This is a hallucinogen. But the point is that all of these, all of these different substances they're all from different indigenous cultures. These are people that are mostly living in hunter-gatherer societies or the tradition comes from them, comes from when that was the case and they're being retained or into pastoralists, maybe a few settled people who still have the remnants of this. Um, as often happens in a culture, there is a cultural practice that is created and the original purpose for that cultural practice goes out of style, but the cultural practice persists. And we're actually going to go over a few examples of that today. That's kind of what happens with alcohol. Um, and, um, I, you know, I can't go into too much detail on everything, but but this is a thing. So in common, all of these, these are hallucinogenic things. Most of them have shamans associated with them, and the religions of, of these people also differs. It, you know, th there's a lot of similarities between religions of people that have similar lifestyles of uh, ways of livings. And if you're a hunter-gatherer in a certain biome, you're going to have a similar culture usually to another hunter-gatherer in that same biome, even if they're across the world in certain ways. And settled peoples are the same way. They have their own characteristics and traits. But in, in this case, religion, I need to bring it up. I'm going to be doing that in another episode. I, I Actually, that's very important. I need to get on that. These are all connected to these indigenous religions because they're shamans. It's inherently a religious trait. Uh, some things you can argue if they're religious traits or not, but shamans, because they're inherently a connection to some spiritual force, that's what they are. Again, we'll go into more detail later. They, they communicate with other types of existence, and that's what these are. You know, these names, they reflect um, the otherworldly properties or godlike properties of these plants. And again, they're all very, very little processed. So there's, they're, maybe they're just crushing them up or drying them. It just depends on what it is. But there isn't like, they're not making pills. You know what I'm saying? Okay. So these hallucinogenic things were, hallucinogenic plants like this were probably the first ones ever to be used. But it seems like the next one is alcohol. And uh, some people have theories, and I, I tend to agree with them, but they are just theories. I don't want to say, like, this is the truth, is that alcohol was one or more drivers of creating civilization because it required processing, so it required staying in place. And it also maybe started the uh, production of wheat or the, the cultivation of wheat because they were trying to use that to make alcohol. So alcohol was was processed more so than the hallucinogens. The hallucinogens could be harvested and processed very quickly and in small quantities. But with alcohol, it required a fermentation process and it required somebody to stay in the same place for a while because you can't just carry around a lot of liquid. It's possible that this gave 
people a survival advantage. People have theorized this, that because they were boiling the water to create the beer, and a lot of times this was very weak beer, that it was safer than water. And they didn't fully understand how this process worked, but it worked anyway. Like everybody was drinking beer. They were drinking beer in like breakfast. And it was a weak beer, and even the children are drinking it. And so they're just a little bit drunk all the time. Can you imagine what this society is like if everybody was just drunk all the time? But the the beer was safer to drink, and it seems like it was important to settled people's lives. And it led to these settled peoples being able to spread their culture. And, you know, most people in the world today are settled, while a few tens of thousands of years ago, that wouldn't have been true in that that level has gone down over time. Most of the people at this point are just farmers. They're working with their hands outside. You know, really, I think this is dumb, but I guess it didn't matter. The The brain fog associated with it, it, it fit their lifestyle in a certain way that meant that this practice kept going for a very, very long time. And apparently there were beer breaks in the 1600s. I read that. Maybe someone made that up on the internet. I didn't meticulously research that because it wasn't that important. But it's an interesting anecdote. Beer breaks, okay? So over time, caffeine gets added into the Western diet. First, it's tea, which is like leaf water. So there's there's more processing with that. It does take drying and, and a process and a time probably closer to beer. And that came first. But then coffee comes around like the 15th century. It starts arriving. And coffee is similar to tea, but it is a higher concentration of caffeine, and it requires more processing, um, even than the tea. It requires quite a bit of processing. So at first, this is a drink of the aristocracy in Europe, and eventually it gets turned into more than that. And in his book, uh, Uncommon Grounds, The History of Coffee and How It Transformed Our World, which I will link down below from Amazon, um, he says, the drink of the aristocracy had become the necessary drug of the masses, and morning coffee replaced beer soup for breakfast. So coffee goes from a drink of the aristocracy over time into a drink of the masses that they essentially have to uh, drink. So let's let's talk about that process. So the Enlightenment is apparently related to caffeine because not only was coffee drank in coffee houses where a lot of the ideas of the Enlightenment were discussed. This was a thing back when the Enlightenment was happening in the 1700s. But the coffee had a effect on the mind of the people that were drinking it. I mean, this is a stimulant. This does change. It's very ubiquitous in Western culture. And that's why maybe it's not thought of as a drug a lot of in a lot of ways. But that's that doesn't mean that it isn't a drug, and that doesn't mean it isn't affecting you a certain way. And if you're always on a drug, like caffeine, then your behavior when you're on the drug is then baselined at you being on that drug. And if it's so accepted in the society that it's like 80% 80, 80 of people have caffeine daily in, in America, and I think the world— I mean, that's just the standard baseline. Any deviation from that is then weird. If you were on, if you were drinking coffee in a culture that didn't normally have it or didn't even know what it was, it would be considered strange behavior. But that behavior is normalized as a cultural norm. And that's why caffeine is so ubiquitous. So the Enlightenment gives way into industrialization and factory work. And this work requires people to come inside. And over time, uh, caffeine became an important part of that because it raised the productivity of the workers. 
So the caffeine use grew over time, and by the early 20th century with industrialization, factory workers were giving their employees coffee a lot of the times, and they were definitely giving them coffee breaks where they could drink coffee. And this was because they noticed that it increased their productivity. So the creation of coffee required more processing than these things before, and it coincided with the growth of industrialization and the growth of modern capitalism. And so coffee itself is a great metaphor for the changes that took place at this time because with more processing needed and larger quantities needed, as well as like standardization and the growth of these factories, they needed a lot of coffee. And this meant they were going to do this through unscrupulous means. So originally, uh, there was a lot of slavery. A lot of uh, slavery in Brazil was used to create coffee. And this coffee was then being used to fuel workers in factories at times when they were highly exploited in Western countries. And then after that, it essentially moves into serfdom in like Latin American countries. Certain Latin American, Latin American countries, just like with the banana companies, were taken over to produce coffee because of how much money it makes. Um... And so the creation of this coffee is in line with like the profit motivated and productivity motivated above all else, above all the human suffering that it causes that is so common at this time. And look, I'm not saying I'm against the free market. I'm not a communist. I'm not against capitalism. But this is something that we need to discuss about these incentives in our culture. And there was a lot of real issues that came to people and a lot of suffering that was created with the production of this coffee for this profit motive. Um, and, and it all ends of it. And today, like I said before, 80% of U.S. adults consume caffeine every day. And it is true as well that people who make more money are more likely to drink it and, and they drink more of it. So caffeine is so ubiquitous in our culture, and it's associated with success. And more than just on an individual level it being associated with success, it's also true that there is a direct relation between GDP per hour worked, so the gross domestic, so the gross domestic product of a country per person is directly related to coffee consumption. So when you look across all countries in the world, when coffee consumption goes up, so does the productivity of a worker measured in average GDP per capita. So, so far I've talked about how one drug is shown to be the main drug in a society and how drugs are accepted in a society, but the other side of that is the prohibition of certain drugs. So let's talk about alcohol. Alcohol was once prohibited in this country, and it's true that Carnegie, Rockefeller, and Henry Ford, these giant titans of industry, they donated $13 million in today's money to fund the temperance movement, likely because drinking alcohol killed the productivity of their workers, just like they funded all these things to change government schools and in, in the image that they wanted to create factory workers. They did this in all aspects of society. And this is what corporations do today. They try to affect laws to benefit them, but it, they were doing it back then too. They tried, they successfully got alcohol made illegal. And this caused untold misery in this country. A lot of you already know that. So marijuana, like I, I didn't go in too far into this, but like a lot of you guys know the stories about the connection to industry for that. But like, honestly, it really, marijuana makes you lazy a little bit. So it's not conducive to doing 
office work or factory work. Hallucinogens, you know, there's just unauthorized views that you get when you have the differing perspective from hallucinogenic trips. They they fit in with a culture that's much more connected with nature and, and community, and the modern culture doesn't accept that. They want globalism, they want uh, control over every aspect of life, and they want you to think in a certain way. It's the, it's the same motivation behind colleges, behind public schools being controlled. They, they want the information taught in a certain way. And when the information you learn and the way that you interact with the world is changed through hallucinogens, that's not authorized in the official dialogue. And this brings me to the last thing, which is modern drugs. Um, what else is legal and encouraged that shouldn't be? So modern drugs. So we had hallucinogens that were very little processed. And then we had uh, alcohol, which is a little bit more processing. Then we have tea and coffee, which are even more processing, definitely for coffee. But modern drugs are hyper processed. And we see this with like pills and things like morphine. And I think the late 1800s um, and cocaine um, of, again, I think the late 1800s. But we have even more hyper-processed now, okay? So with hallucinogens, you know, there's things like mushrooms, which people still take, but there's also LSD, which is hyper-concentrated into this, into this formula. Um, it's DMT versus ayahuasca. DMT is the actual, um, it's the chemical that's in ayahuasca that makes you have the trip. So DMT is very, very concentrated, and it gives you a different high than ayahuasca. I haven't done either one, so I don't know, but... It's a shorter thing, and it brings you directly into it. Um, caffeine pills, you know, they literally took caffeine from this. They put them in pills. They sell them. And nurses and soldiers and Marines take them. Uh, Adderall, which is, like, even more than caffeine, um, you know, that is that is a modern way. This is, this is hyper-processed. And, you know, opium. Opium, which if you chewed it or then you smoked it, it would still be processed. If you chewed it, it wouldn't. But if you smoked it, it would be processed. But over time, they just made it stronger and stronger. And if you've seen, I think, Dope Sick, it was called, and maybe a few others, documentaries about this, like, now we've got fentanyl. And you guys know about fentanyl. It's hyper, hyper concentrated. A few decades ago, they had concentrated, very concentrated versions that would never exist in nature. But now they have this fentanyl ship, which is super concentrated. And that's the drugs. That's how we deal with drugs in the modern world. You know, caffeine is still king, but these other ones are coming up to it. These other drugs are becoming more prominent and they're having a real negative effect. This gets more into the abuse than the use. But these maybe I would call them abuse, but they're sanctioned uses from these drug companies. And this likely has to do with profit incentives and how they make money from it. And they're detached from the human suffering just like the people who were growing and drinking coffee were detached from the suffering that was attached to it. History doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Um, yeah, so this leads me into next week, which is going to be medicine in the modern world, especially in America, and comparing that to other things. We're going to talk about how modern American culture deals with health and how other cultures do it and what maybe we're not doing right. One of those things being these fucking pills. Join the Discord.